Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. So you had this collection of trustworthy text, and uh, when, when it was assembled together, it came to be known as the Byzantine text. It was protected, it's called the Byzantine text because it was protected by the Byzantine Empire. Now, it's, it's interesting at this time, the Catholic Church split in two. One side remained in Rome, and the other side became the Byzantine Empire. Uh, it was the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, that, that, that whole region. So, essentially, you have two, two sides of the Catholic Church but the Byzantine Empire protected God's word. God used an ungodly group of people to preserve and to protect his word. That's why you can't, you can't look at the history of the Bible from a human perspective and say, where is the word of God? You know, it, it has to fit into a box or to an, it has to have been preserved the way that I think it was preserved. God will use, we're going we're gonna to learn here, momentarily about Erasmus, a Roman Catholic priest who assembled what came to be known as the Textus Receptus. And a lot of our brethren hate that. Why did he have to be part of this? <laughs> Why did a Roman Catholic... Now, he wasn't an ordinary Roman Catholic. The Catholic Church hated him. But they couldn't do anything with him because he was such a brilliant man. He, he, he was so powerful mentally that they couldn't touch him. They, they didn't know what to do with him. Now, at, at, during his time in the 1500s when he was alive, if you went against the Roman Catholic Church, they just killed you. They, and it, it would be a horrible death. But they did not know what to do with this man. They could, they could do nothing with him. And, and so he played a major role. in he, he is the, the person who created what we call the Textus Receptus. And so God used the Byzantine Empire to preserve his word throughout this period. This was, and, and this is the period it covered, 452 to 1453. That's how long God used these people to protect his word. <clears throat> now, th this was the difference between the two. So in Rome... They would edit God's word the way they felt necessary. They just did what they wanted to it. They didn't care about its preservation. They didn't care that it was God's word. They just changed it the way they wanted. But the Byzantine Empire, at least the texts that they had, they didn't touch them. They didn't edit them. They just left them as they were. Now, the Byzantine text is also known as the traditional text. It actually has a number of names. The majority text, 
the Byzantine text, the traditional text, the majority text. Um, <clears throat> it's got several other names, uh, but but these are the ones that we are going to work with. That text has had God's preservation and protection over the centuries. In 1516, the Byzantine text was printed and disseminated throughout all of Western Europe. Like Where in the world that came from, nobody knows. But in 1516, this text began to be distributed throughout all of Europe, Western Europe. Or let me make sure I say that right. Yeah, Western Europe. It spread widely during the Protestant Reformation. This collection of Greek texts was edited by a man named Erasmus. Now, what do I mean by edited? Uh, I don't mean that he went through them and, and changed it in any, in any way. What he did was he took this collection of texts, and at this point Erasmus had created his own Latin version of the New Testament, and he, and he took all of it together, and through his editing process, that his, the editing he did was done for the purpose of printing. He, he was given a deadline by a printer. He needed to get this, this Greek text together, and make it available. So he had to go through all these texts. We're talking about possibly thousands of them. And bring them together, make sense of it all, make sure, that, verify you know, that they were true, they were supposed to be there. And then you know, if you have duplicates of certain ones, you know, you got to pick the one you're going to work from, verify that it's the same as the others, bring it all together. And then what he came up with, his final work, was the Textus Receptus after he assembled it all together. He was charged with the task of editing and assembling the Greek text for the printer. Now, if anybody's looking for a name, we talked about this before. If you plan to have a child in the future and you need a good name, the printer's name was Froben of Basil. That's a good name right there. This printed Greek text is commonly called the Textus Receptus. It is the foundation of the New Testament for, who can guess? The King James Bible. Now, the King James translators used everything they could get their hands on that was valid. They went through the same type of validation process. And we're going, to talk, we're going to talk in depth about Erasmus in just a moment. We're going, to, we're going to talk a lot about him. He's an important figure in the history of the Bible. Um, but the King James translators basically did the same thing he did. They looked at everything they had available in Latin, in Syria, in Arabic, in, I mean, wherever the Word of God had been faithfully translated, they brought all that together, plus the manuscripts that were extant, plus the Textus Receptus, plus the Masoretic text, all of that. And these men could read them, understand them, translate them. I mean, they had unbelievable linguistic capability. And, and that's, that's what they used to produce what came to be known as the King James Bible. But the, the foundation was the Textus Receptus. It was kind of the, the gold standard that they went to. Uh, it's what uh, William Tyndale used when he translated his English version. Um, he translated the Bible into English from Greek into English by himself. William Tyndale is a brilliant man. Uh, Erasmus was a, Erasmus is possibly was possibly the most intelligent man to live in the 16th century. He was just incredible. And, and we're going to, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this man could do. He could perform the work of ten men. In a day's work, what it would take 10 hardworking men to do, Erasmus could do by himself. He was just an unbelievable figure. And so now you can see the Roman Catholic Church is like, what do we do with this guy? <laughs> he outworks 10 of us put together. <laughs> He's smarter than all of us put together. We don't know what to do with him. And, and he wrote widely, and his, his writings were read by all of Europe, 
So they didn't know what to do with them. If they put them to death, which is what they would normally do, Europe would be in an uproar, and they'd, be, they'd have a big mess on their hands. So, so praise the Lord for men like Erasmus, who refused to go along with the Catholic Church and, and their standard you know, way of doing things. So um, Textus Receptus in English means received text. So Textus for text, Receptus for received. The Textus Receptus is in full agreement with the Byzantine text. There is hardly a difference between the two. If you found one, it'd be so petty not to worry about. Uh, Erasmus was very, very careful. Erasmus was very honest. Around this same time, a Latin Bible was widely used in Western Europe called the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate was an actual uh, pure copy of the Word of God. It was not the new Latin Vulgate used by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, as we talked about, uh, hired Jerome to make a new, a new New Testament. And when he did that, he, he, he put it in Latin, which at the time was widely used throughout, throughout Europe. And just as the devil always does, he named it after the pure word of God. <laughs> you know, why, why would the devil make a new Bible and then say, you know, put Satan's name at the end, from Satan. <laughs> They're not going to do that, but that's, that's, what they, that's essentially what they did. The Bible existed as a Latin version of the Byzantine text and the Textus Receptus. So, so this Latin version is important. So you had, you had the Byzantine, the Latin, and then you had, if, after these two were used to produce the Textus Receptus. All right, so eventually you had these three that you could use to compare when it came time to go into English. So the Byzantine text is the, is the original conglomerate of all the texts that, that were available. And to, to date, I, I haven't looked in 2022, last I checked, and all the books that I've read, there are around 5,200 plus of these texts. 5,200 plus. Now remember, we talked about Westcott and Hort and their attachment to the, the Alexandrian text. There are like 10 of those. So you have 5,200 plus texts that support the Byzantine, the Latin, and the Textus Receptus, and you have like 7 or 10 that support the Alexandrian manuscripts. Now you see the folly in that? It's not about evidence. They had a predisposition to a certain text, and they didn't care whether it was true or not. And they have swayed the entire world of Christendom to follow them. And it shouldn't be. So the Bible existed as a Latin version of the Byzantine text. The Textus Receptus came later, so Erasmus used the Byzantine text as well as the Latin Vulgate, to prepare his Textus Receptus. It's also important to note that um, Erasmus had his own version of the Latin. So he refused to use Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and, and so did the King James translators. They all, As they look back and trace the history of it all, they realize it was just a corrupt text. And so uh, Erasmus had his own version of the Latin, and he had the ability to, to do that. And... Um, and he prepared what came to be known as the Textus Receptus. The existence of the Textus Receptus meant the best of existing documents were now combined into one readable Greek text. Now, imagine that. You went from thousands of texts to now you have all those assembled together into one book for the, for the first time as one Greek perfectly readable text. So you can see how this is being trimmed down and cut down to, to eventually an assembly of all the Word of God into one book. And before that, it, that was a rare thing. Even in some of the, some of the other uh, accurate versions of the Word of God, they would be missing certain books of the Bible. They just didn't have access to them. It's not like 
today you can just download the whole Greek text off the internet if you want and then do a translation program. You know, you had to go find these texts and they were often kept by people who may not be friendly to you. <laughs> and, and it was hit or miss whether you had access to it or not. And then the length of time it took to translate that text and to do it accurately, Erasmus was in the perfect situation to do that. At this time, the Catholic Church had control of all the books, all the documents. It didn't matter what it was, it belonged to the Catholic Church. They, they set about taking anything, any document or any book that was of importance and brought it into the Catholic Church, and you couldn't have access to it unless you were in their elite circles. Well, Erasmus was in those elite circles, even though they didn't want him there. <laughs> so um, this process played a major role in the preservation of the New Testament text of, the, of our King James Bible. The involvement of the priesthood, both old and new, played important parts in this preservation. God's people until the modern era always rejected false documents that claimed to be God's word. Only in, in recent years have people been so willing to, to receive corruption. When I'm trying to help people that have a false Bible, and, and I, my, my assumption is that I've, I've given them the gospel, they already knew the gospel, said that that's what they were believing, so they're saved, if that's true, right? That means they have the Holy Spirit, if that's true. But then they have a corrupt book in their hands. And so I, I'll, I'll try to talk to them about that, and I'll take them through, and I'll show them. Entire verses missing out of your Bible. They're just, they're gone. And their Bible uses, if you go to, go to Acts chapter 8 real quick, we'll look at one. <clears throat> this is one I use the most because it makes no logical sense whatsoever. There is no argument for this verse to be missing. Acts 8, and look at verse 37. Actually, let's start in verse 36. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? That verse ends with a question, right? <clears throat> what is the question? What is hindering me to be baptized? Right? I want to be water baptized. What's preventing me? What's hindering me? What is stopping me? Okay, if you have any of the new Bibles, or if you have a Roman Catholic Bible, or if you have a Jehovah's Witness Bible, go to verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. That's what it says. And it's numbered 35, 36, 38, 39. <laughs> Now, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, <laughs> they renumbered the chapter. So verse 37 appears to be there, but it's, it's not verse 37. <clears throat> Instead of uh, 40, it's chapter 39. Now, at least the others were honest enough to just to not renumber the chapter. But then they'll put a footnote in the bottom and say, some manuscripts have verse 37 there, but, but the oldest manuscripts do not, so we did not put it in there. Okay, now let's, let's, just, let's just think about it from a, from a logical perspective. Verse 36 ends with a question. The answer to the question is in verse 37. <laughs> and you knew verse 37 was available to you, and you chose not to put it there. And then I ask them, does that bother you? And if that doesn't bother them, there's nothing I can do to help them. <laughs> if that doesn't concern them, that the answer to the question... Now, if you think about this from the perspective of nearly every single false church in existence that uses a false Bible, what do nearly every single one of them teach about baptism? It's required for salvation. So it would be pretty damning if there was a verse in which a man said, I want to be baptized, what's preventing me? And the answer is, first you've got to get saved. <laughs> Trust in Jesus Christ, and then I will baptize you. That's, that's, this is the most damning verse 
against uh, baptism, you know, baptism for salvation in the entire Bible. There are others that are that are against it, but this is as clear as you could possibly get. Uh, look at another one. We're going to look at these again later, but look at Luke chapter 4. So after I show them that, I'll, I'll take them to Luke chapter 4. And, and I may have showed you this already. I, I don't recall. But Luke chapter 4, verse 4. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Did I miss anything? Yeah. That's what every new Bible says. That's what the Roman Catholic Bible says. That's what the Jehovah's Witness Bible says. That's what every Bible based on Alexandrian manuscripts says. Now, again, let's, let's, let's try to think about this from, from a reasonable perspective. If, if you look at what's deleted from the passage, but by every word of God, you deleted the phrase that says you need every word of God. Do you not see a problem with that? And if they don't see a problem with that, then I shake their hand and walk away because there's nothing I can do for you. <laughs> it's just ironic to me, the very passage that says you need every word of God, you deleted that. <laughs> and so that's where we are in the world of Christianity. Uh, so God's people until the modern era <laughs> always rejected false documents that claim to be God's word. That, that leads me to question the indwelling Holy Spirit of a lot of people in the modern era. A lot of people are claiming to be saved, but they'll, they'll just accept anything in the name of Jesus. How did the Holy Spirit let you get, away, let you get into that and, and, and did nothing to try to deter you or stop you or sway you or help you? You can quench the Spirit. That's very possible. But for most of them, I question whether they ever had the Spirit. Um, the involvement of the priesthood, both old and new, played important parts in this preservation. God's people, and we already read that. Now, they would not read corrupt texts. They would not circulate corrupt text. Any text was subject to approval by the priesthood of believers. So if, if, if the body of Christ got a hold of a document... They get all excited, oh, we've got, we got another letter from Paul. But Paul wrote in another letter, be careful about letters being circulated with my name on it because people are circulating letters that I didn't write with my name on it. And so they get all excited and they'd read it and they'd read it and they'd be like, there's something wrong here. Something's not right about this. And it quickly disappear. It, it, they wanted nothing to do with it. The same will be true for the Luganda Bible. When it is finally ready, it will be subject to the priesthood of believers in Uganda. If they reject it, the book will die a natural death. If they receive it, it will become the standard for God's word in the Buganda kingdom. It's up to God's people. <clears throat> Many books have been translated accurately and, and diligently into many languages, and the people there completely rejected it. So we'll see how it goes here. Because of this process of approval throughout history, we are left with certain extant manuscripts. Who knows what the word extant means? Not everybody at once. <laughs> no. Extent. What's that? Magnitude? No. No, no, no. no I'll show you. So the word... Yes, in existence. So extant is a word that refers to manuscripts that currently exist. But if you go to college, you don't want to use the word exist. You want to use an intelligent word like extant. You pay it all that money to get an education. So This body of manuscripts was used to produce the printed Greek New Testament known as the Textus Receptus. Finally, the Textus Receptus played a major role in the creation of the King James Bible. Now, our friend, <clears throat> here's another name, if anybody's interested. 
Desiderius Erasmus. See, that's a good name. After a man who's got good godly historical significance. He was a brilliant man, possibly the greatest mind to live in the 16th century. It was said of Erasmus he could do the work of 10 men in a single day. And that boggles my mind. I mean, I was so, so focused on what he was doing and so focused on his work, he could perform as well as 10 men in a single day. That, that's, that's incredible. He was born at Rotterdam in 1466. He died at the age of 70 in 1536. Erasmus was the son of a Roman Catholic priest. Both of his parents died of the plague when he was a boy. He and his brother were sent to live with his uncle, but his uncle did not want the boys. He didn't didn't want to have to deal with them. In his uncle's search for a way to get rid of them, he sent them to a monastery to live. And this would have a profound impact on the direction of Erasmus' life. Now, you can imagine a kid with a mind like that sent to live in a monastery. Um, the, The Catholic Church, for all their devilry, one thing they've had a good focus on is education. And um, at, in this period, we're, we're right around the time frame when the Roman Catholic Church was in charge of the world. They were the, they were the world power at the time. And it's called the Dark Ages. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible to me that someone can claim to belong to Jesus Christ, but when you had an opportunity to have power, they said that your reign was dark and evil. So it's called the Dark Ages. And so he had, this was during that time when they were taking all the books. They had these, these massive libraries. They had this collection of, of just incredible material that were only available to people who, who were in the priesthood. And um, Erasmus ends up in this monastery where he has direct access to all of that. And he, he, he has a mind that can just read and read and read and soak in all that information. And so it was, it was the perfect place for him. Erasmus himself became an Augustinian Roman Catholic priest. He, he was a Catholic priest of the Augustinian order. It is said he chose the Augustinians because they had the best libraries. <laughs> so that, that's not how most people choose their jobs. How much are you going to pay me <laughs> is what most people want to know. But Erasmus said, who's got the best library? That's where I want to go. So he was an incredible man. Erasmus had an insatiable desire for knowledge. Who knows what the word insatiable means? Yeah. If you're satiated, it means you've, you've had your fill. If you're insatiable, you can't be filled. He would just read and read and read and read. And I don't know if they had a library big enough for this guy. Um, his life as a priest was somewhat odd compared to the others. And here's where things get off rails quickly for Erasmus and the Catholic Church. He never wanted to be a priest. But he, he, through the course of his life and the events that took place, he didn't want anything to do with the Catholic Church. He despised the Catholic Church. But at this time in history, the Catholic Church ruled the world. You were either, you were either for them or you were dead. <laughs> Those were your only options. Uh, they, they killed anybody that stood against them. And there was no recourse. There was nothing you could do about it. You just died. And, and it was always a brutal death. They didn't just kill you. They, they killed you in a slow and torturous way. Erasmus was somewhat of a defiant figure. And though the Catholic Church would simply put rebels to death, they did not know what to do with Erasmus. He never participated in vigils. He ate meat on Fridays. <laughs> and he never actually functioned as a priest, though he was ordained. 
They'd be like, all right, Rasmus, it's your turn to do the priestly duties. I'm not doing it. I have stuff to do. You go play your games. He's like, I'm, I'm, he saw the Catholic Church, and, and we're going to get to it in just a second, but the Catholic Church at this time had become so powerful, the priests were sleeping with prostitutes, they were stealing money from people. They, I mean, they were just, they were devils of the, of the first order. I mean, they, they were high-level reprobates. And Erasmus saw that. He said, you're claiming to you know, speak on behalf of God. You were just out with a prostitute. So no, I'm not participating in this fake, ungodly mess that you have going on. And, um, and, and they didn't know what to do with him. They're like, well, you can't do that. Like, well, I just did. <laughs> and this, so for all of you in this room, this notes the importance of studying, of reading. Learn to be articulate. Learn to write. Learn to be able to express yourself effectively. There is incredible power in that. The, the, the worst of dictators often don't know what to do with a person who is so well-rounded, so intelligent, so well-read, and can express themselves so effectively, they tend to just leave you alone. <laughs> the world looks to people like that. They want to learn from people like that. Now, the world of intellectuals, not all of them are completely evil, but they're pretty ridiculous. They, they, they tend to be ungodly. If they're not ungodly, they're taught to be ungodly by the time they got there. Now, there, there are plenty of Christian intellectuals that exist in the world. They probably wouldn't run in, in our circles of Christianity, but they're there. And praise the Lord, they're there. But the world looks up to people like this who have this type of ability, and this type of ability has to be learned. Some of it is going to be natural, but, but the major extent of it, this man was in libraries reading. He was studying. He was writing. He, he wasn't hanging out with the priest drinking or talking or playing football or wasting his life doing something that, has, that, that does nothing to help develop his future. It, when it comes to our children, we raise children and, and we let them, in America, I, I use America as an example, we, we, we encourage our children to, to play and waste the first 18 years of their life. And then when they turn 18, they said, okay, you're an adult now. you got to make adult decisions. Well, just yesterday I was 17, and you were treating me like I was a kid, and you let me run around and play and waste my time, and now you want me to act like an adult? <laughs> and it's a big mistake. You should train those children from the day they're born to, to learn, to, to use their mind, to be able to articulate words, to be able to speak well, to speak effectively, to write well. And if nobody's going to teach you how to do it, you're going to have to learn how to do it yourself. You're going to have to figure it out. Because you don't have anybody here to hold your hand. Nobody's going to do it for you. And it doesn't matter when you start. You need to start. Especially if you're a preacher. The better you can articulate what needs to be said and clearly express to people what God is saying, the, the, the stronger those people will be as a congregation, the more they'll grow in, in spiritual maturity. So here you have an example of that. You have a man that simply because of his mental capacity, his ability to write and express himself, the Catholic Church all the way up to the Pope is like, what are we going to do with this guy? <laughs> we can't kill him because if we kill him, everybody loves him because of his mind. And if we kill him, then they're going to hate us and we're going to have riots and uproars all over the place. Only because of his mind and because he took a stand. He took a stand for the Word of God. So, Erasmus was a prolific writer, and all of Europe longed for his writings. They loved to read whatever Erasmus wrote, and he wrote continuously, just endlessly, constantly writing. Often, Erasmus would attack the excesses of the Catholic Church. He would berate the papacy, the priesthood, and the monks for their overindulgence. During this time, indulgence was a, was a big deal. You could buy indulgence from the Catholic Church. There has never been a dirtier idea than that. I, I, you have a sick, twisted, sinful desire. Well, if you come to me, your priest, and you buy an indulgence from me, 
I'll excuse you from purgatory for the time you deserve for, for, for participating in that sick, twisted, sinful. And these, they, they, it wasn't like I need to tell a lie. It, it was prostitution. It was drunkenness. It, it was stealing. Oftentimes it was, look, I, you know, I need this land over here and this man owns it. But it would really be helpful to me and to the church if I own this land. So I need to go kill this guy and take his land. Well, let me write you an indulgence. No problem. We'll help you escape purgatory for a, a, a short amount of time so you can go and satisfy your flesh. And Erasmus stood against that garbage and said, I'm not participating in it. And that, and that ruins everything. You can imagine if you've got a whole group of people together and they're all participating in this and you have that one guy in the corner who won't participate. It's like, come on, man, you're making us look bad. <laughs> I mean, we've got a good thing going here. You could just participate and it'd be okay. And Rasmus is like, I'm not doing it and I'm going to keep writing and exposing you. That just ruins the whole program. <laughs> all it takes is one person wanting to be faithful to God and everybody hates you. He said the monks won't touch money, but they don't mind touching wine and women. (laughs) He's putting this in his writings, and it's published for all of Europe to read. You can't do this in this day. If you do this, the Catholic Church is going to put you to death. They didn't touch Erasmus. Everyone else who ever tried this, they got put to death. They didn't touch Erasmus. Um, he attacked the clerics, keeping of concubines. What does a cleric need? Whatever a cleric is in the Catholic Church, what, he needs a concubine? He needs concubines. Who knows what a concubine is? It's not a wife. It's just a woman who performs wifely duties, and you get to keep a whole cage full of them and use them as you need. And... These clerics in the Roman Catholic Church had, you know, several concubines at a time. Erasmus said, I'm, I'm not, that's not okay. He stood against the Catholic Church's treatment of heretics. If you were like Erasmus and declared a heretic, they'd put you to death. And it was never, okay, just put them to death, make it quick. It was always a torturous, horrendous death. And they would torture you leading up to the death to try and get you to recant. And once you would recant, sometimes they might let you live as long as you kept your mouth shut. And sometimes they went ahead and killed you anyways. That's Catholicism. That's what they would do again if they could get power again. Now, currently, they're weak, ineffective, and useless. But they're doing everything they can to to get themselves back in position to try and have this kind of power. And they will do it again if, if, it is, if they are able. Erasmus was, outspoken, uh, was an outspoken critic of Pope Julius. He said the Pope was a monarch that is the pest of all Christendom. <laughs> now, it's hard for me to say what a Pope is supposed to be because there's no such thing as a Pope. The Catholic Church made that up so they can make it whatever they want. That doesn't exist in the Word of God anywhere, in any shape, form, or fashion. There is no vicar of Christ on earth. (laughs) And they they claim Peter was the first pope and that he was the first vicar of Christ. Well, Peter had a wife. He was married. So what happened to the rest of you? (laughs) Rather Rather than molesting children, why don't you get a wife so that you can try and satisfy those desires in, in, a, in a more respectful way. The Catholic Church spends around $50 billion per year paying off the families of children their priests have molested. $50 billion. Erasmus was not going to go along with that. He said, uh, in his day, no one could make such statements about the Catholic Church and live. They would not only be put to death, uh, but it would be a slow and torturous death. But with Erasmus, they did not know what to do. His situation notes the power of intelligence and the ability to articulate your ideas. 
It was his brilliance and his way with words that, that cornered the entire Catholic Church. He took on the Pope as a lowly priest who wouldn't even act as a priest. <laughs> and they did nothing. They didn't know what to do. And there's one more thing I should have added there. It was his integrity to try and do what God said. You're going to notice something throughout history. Men like Erasmus, like Martin Luther, who broke from the Roman Catholic Church. You know what caused them to break from the Roman Catholic Church or to defy the Roman Catholic Church? It was always their relationship with the Word of God. Every time. Martin Luther, he was sent to to do a review of the book of Romans. He had never seen the book of Romans. And he read through the book of Romans and he learned that justification was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that ruined everything. <laughs> he could not go back. And, and he ended up kicking the door open, as, as it will, uh, to the Protestant Re- Reformation. Um, and, you know, and, and then when it comes to men like Erasmus and Martin Luther, we don't, we don't look to them for Bible doctrine. These men, though they removed themselves from the Catholic Church, they often didn't go far enough. And while there are many things we can learn from them, and we should, God didn't, these men just experienced light. I mean, it, they just opened the door out of the dark ages into a period of light, and, and the world was set free from the Roman Catholic Church through that process. They just barely got their hands on the Word of God before they, they left the earth and and went to heaven and, and, and were no longer here. So we don't look to those men for doctrine. We look to those men for what they accomplished through the Reformation. If they didn't do that, then, then I'm not here, Brother Tellman's not here, Brother Keith is not here. We're not here with a Bible in our hands teaching you the perfect Word of God. That opportunity wouldn't exist if Martin Luther and the men of the Reformation didn't break Rome's hold on the world. But they did that. And they opened up the door for the opportunity for every man to have a copy of the Word of God in his own language. And so that's, that's where we are now. That's how, how we came to be here. The Pope eventually offered him a bishopric <laughs> in the hopes he could bribe Erasmus to be quiet. And that's, we can't kill him because everybody will hate us if we do. So let's offer him a very high position that pays a lot of money. <laughs> And see if he'll take that and be quiet. Well, that didn't work. Um, Erasmus was not interested. A position of this sort came with great wealth and power. But it did not entice Erasmus whatsoever. (laughs) Now, you can imagine the frustration these men felt. You know, it never occurred to them, maybe we should stop living like devils and, and repent and fix this. They instead said, let's try and bribe him to come over here with us. <laughs> and it didn't work. Uh, he had too much integrity. He was not, not going to do that. He refused the position and continued his attacks. Erasmus was known as a humanist. This is important. Um, it's not important necessarily for the uh, history of the Bible, but because a humanist today is very different from a humanist in Erasmus' day. A humanist today is a very ungodly idea. It's a very self-centered, you know, humanism is about man pleasing his flesh, is essentially what it boils down to. But a humanist of Erasmus' day was a group of people who cared about people. And Erasmus hated the way uh, uh, you had, in Europe at that time, you had a very structured class system. And the, the people at the lowest levels of the class system basically existed to serve the upper class, and that's it. You never had any opportunity to move. You know, within America, America has, has almost never had any sort of class system. It's, been so, it's so easy in America. It's, it's not easy. It, it, it takes a great deal of effort. But it's, possi- it's so possible in America to move from poverty to great riches right back into poverty, to the middle class, right back into... I mean, you, it's, it's up to you what you want to do. If you want to work and you want to save your money and you want to uh, spend it wisely and be, be diligent, then you'll live a good life in America. It's hard to be locked into a class system. Well, it's not like that in most countries in the world. 
That's a rare thing that exists. And of course, we have a group of people at power now who want to get rid of that and, and, and destroy that idea. But, but we don't have class systems. Now, we, we, had a, a, we have a history of, of slavery that was abolished early on and, and dealt with through a civil war. I mean, hundreds of thousands of Americans died over the issue of slavery, and the side that was against slavery won. And so it's done. It's over. It was settled. And, and over time, all that got rectified and cleared out. And, and now, it doesn't matter who you are, if you come to America and you'll work and you'll, you'll be, you'll be uh, a good steward of your money, you're going to have a good life. Well, that's not available in most of the world and a lot of the world. And Erasmus saw what was going on in Europe and he hated it. And so as a humanist, he stood against those, those type ideas. Um, they, they were legitimately concerned with the poor. It wasn't just a, you know, uh, today people claim to be concerned about the poor and they end up doing things that make people more poor. <laughs> uh, if somebody comes to you and says, oh, I'm concerned about your poverty, tell them to get away. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to help you. <laughs> uh, so that, that's, that was a humanist in his day. At this time in Europe, class systems were strong and the lower classes existed solely to serve the upper classes. Erasmus hated that this existed and intended to do something about it. At this time, the Roman Catholic Church was, full, was in full control of the only available Bible. It was, of course, a corrupt Bible that descended from the Alexandrian text. What are our two lines of manuscripts? What? Byzantine, or, or for that which, go, which is the Antiochian text. So what you're going to see, it's going to go like this. And it's, it's, it's a bit confusing, and we're just kind of introducing you to the ideas, but, but this is going to be the eventual breakdown of the two texts. You have the Antioch text, which is the Byzantine traditional and textus receptus. And then you have Alexandria. So our two lines in terms of the lineage of manuscripts, one lineage comes from Antioch, one comes from Alexandria. Antioch in our Bible is always a good place, or at least in our New Testament, is always good. It's, it's, it became the center of New Testament, uh, uh, what we would call missions today. It, it, was, it became the, one of the greatest churches in all the New Testament. Well, this line of man, this, these manuscripts descend from Antioch. All right? Here you have Alexandria. And, and from Alexandria, you have a number of texts that, that you have the Alexandrian text. You have the Western. These are the two major texts. But they, they can be easily summed up or condensed into one as the Alexandrian because they influenced each other. Um, you know, the, the corruption in the Western text reflects the corruption in the Alexandrian text. And we're going to go through some of that a little bit later. And so to simplify it, we just say the Alexandrian text or the Alexandrian lineage. But here you have the Antioch lineage which is the byzantine the traditional and these two are the same thing they just some call it the majority text uh, but but they were eventually condensed into the textus receptus and so this line produced the kjv this line produced every other modern version after the kjv so every english bible after the 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 king james bible all came from alexandria but the, the greatest assembly of scholars put together, linguistic scholars put together to produce the King James Bible rejected anything from Alexandria and would only receive anything that came from Antioch, Byzantine, and Erasmus, Texas Receptus. So this Catholic Bible was a corrupt Bible from the Alexandrian text. Erasmus set out to correct this reality. He said he would provide a Greek text that could be read by the common man. That's another common thread that runs between these men. Um, Erasmus, I want the common man to read the Bible. William Tyndale. William Tyndale told a Catholic priest, 
who basically was threatening him and telling him, if you put this Bible, if you put the, the Greek New Testament in English, then we're going to put you to death. And he told that man, I'll see to it that a plowboy knows more of the Word of God than you do. <laughs> and so there's this common uh, theme that they want the common man to have the Bible in words that they can read. And so here we are in the Buganda Kingdom, in, in southern Uganda. And the only Bible you have is from the Alexandrian text. And it's been even, it's been 10 times corrupted since its, since its creation. They've changed it a number of times. You know, everybody talks about the 1960 version of, of the Luganda Bible, or the 1960s version of the Luganda Bible. The, the Luganda Bible was first printed, at least the New Testament, in, I believe in 18, 1889 or some, somewhere around there. Right, right around 1890. We're going to go into the history of that uh, when we get to the RSV, because that's where it came from. The, the RV, the revised version, was Westcott and Hort's Bible that came from the Alexandrian text. Well, the men that came here, the missionaries who came here, brought the revised version and translated the Luganda Bible from the revised version. And since then, the Uganda Bible Society has just taken liberty to make all the changes they want. And need. So you don't have a reliable copy of God's word in your language. So what should you do until we get you one? You should keep studying what you have. You should do the best you can with what you have. If you can read English, then I would focus more on the English as, you, know, as you are able. But if, if Luganda is, if you're more prone to read Luganda, then just do the best you can with what you have. You're not going to hell because you use a Bible from the Alexandrian text, but we do want to get you an accurate copy of God's Word. His work began by collecting all available text and then laboring to verify their validity. And uh, he, in essence, he separated them this way. Anything that came from Jerome in Alexandria, this is the man that the Catholic Church commissioned... (laughs) To, uh, to, to put together the new Latin Vulgate. <clears throat> Anything that came from this man, Erasmus said, I will not use it. He edited it. He changed it. It is not accurate. I'm, I'm not using it. If they could be deemed reliable, then he would use them. If they, were, if they could not be redeemed, uh, uh, deemed reliable, they were rejected and he would refuse to use them. In he completed his work in 1516. Then he produced a second edition in 1519. Now you've got to imagine one man. Now Erasmus is a special person, uh, you know, with the ability to do just an inordinate amount of work accurately in a short period of time. But to assemble hundreds or maybe even thousands of manuscripts and then try to go through all those and disseminate them down into accurate texts that can be used to create this Greek New Testament, that's a lot of work. I mean, that is just a massive job. Uh, William Tyndale did something very similar. 75% of your King James Bible came from William Tyndale's translation. Now, for a single man... That's incredible. You had it 75% right to the point that 50 men thought, you know, William Tyndale had it right. Let's just use his. (laughs) And then when you get to the King James Bible, uh, the king assembled 50 men. About 45 of them lasted all the way through to the end, to, to the end of the translation work. So you have Erasmus, who was a brilliant linguistic scholar doing this on his own. William Tyndale, who's a brilliant linguistic scholar, doing it on his own. But then for the King James Bible, you have 50 men like them combined together to put together your King James Bible. That's incredible. That's why it's so foolish for a man today to say, well, the King James translators messed up with this word. Really? You you don't compare to one of them. But you want to argue with 50 of them combined together 
you should sit down and be quiet or maybe get a real job and stop telling people you're a preacher. It's ridiculous. Um, Erasmus was very careful and very honest in performing his work. His first two editions did not contain 1 John 5, 7. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. And this, this is an example of his honesty and his integrity. Um, if you read all modern Bibles, 1 John chapter 5. Five and verse seven is deleted. It does not exist in the, in those Bibles. It doesn't exist in the Catholic Bible. It doesn't exist in the uh, in the Jehovah's Witness Bibles. Uh, this verse is removed. Now, what do we say about Acts chapter eight verse thirty seven? It's the most clear verse that salvation is required before baptism in all the Bible. There is not a more clear verse. On the, on the Trinity in the entire Bible than 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. If you delete this verse, you have a hard time proving to me the Trinity actually exists. That there's no other verse that is this clear. Now, it is alluded to in several other passages, and you can see it in several other passages, but this passage expressly teaches that fact. And if you delete it, you lose a lot. We need every word of God. So let's read the verse, verse seven, chapter 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, what people will say, oh, that just means they agree. Okay, let's read verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Is there a difference in being one and agreeing in one? (laughs) There's a big difference. The first three, and and this is the other problem you have. In verse 7, you have testimony from heaven. In verse 8, you have testimony from earth. If you lose verse 7, you lose the testimony from heaven. And if it's just testimony from earth, then it's subject to anybody's opinion. You just make it up as you go. But the Word of God is very clear, and that passage should be there. Now, Erasmus struggled with this, and here's why. This passage was surrounded by much controversy, so the conditions had to be correct for him to add the verse. The trouble for Erasmus is that he did not possess. Now, it doesn't mean that it didn't exist. He did not possess a Greek manuscript that had the verse. He could see that grammatically, so, so when you read this passage in, in Greek, if you were someone who could actually read in Greek rather than someone who opens a Greek dictionary and says, well, this word in the Greek, you don't know what you're talking about. Erasmus could read this in Greek, and he could see that according to the grammatical structure, verse 7 had to be there. It made no sense. It was completely corrupt if verse 7 was not there. So when you read from verse 5, 6 to 8, if verse 7 is not there, grammatically the Greek structure was completely incoherent. So he knew the passage had to be there. But he did not possess a Greek text that had it there. Now he's got either hundreds or maybe even a a, a thousand Greek texts in his possession at that time, but none of them verified to him that had to be there. And he wasn't just going to go on his opinion and put it there. He wanted verification from the Word of God that it belonged there. He knew it belonged there. He knew grammatically it belonged there. He knew biblically it belonged there. But he needed support from the Greek text. This is the difference from Alexandria. Alexandria would just, I think it goes there. I'm just going to put it there. In fact, Alexandria, people from Alexandria decided it didn't belong there, so they deleted it. That, that's the difference in mentality of people that we're working with here. You have one group of people who <clears throat> believes the Word of God is pure, and you don't change it. You do what it says. And you have one people who say, well, God didn't mean to say that. <laughs> Let me help God out. He made a mistake here. And so based on my opinion, I'm going to change this so that it reads better and 
and that God doesn't look so foolish by having accidentally put this here. That's a big difference in mentality. And that mentality has influenced independent Baptist churches. Now, it's more subtle in independent Baptist churches. They would never say that, but they'll say, well, this word in the Greek is, why are you telling me this word in the Greek? Are you suggesting that there's a problem in the English Bible? And they, they, they don't realize that's what they're doing, but that's exactly what they're doing. They're telling you that this book is insufficient, but I'm here. And I have a strong concordance. <laughs> so I'm going to save you from God's inaccuracies by opening my strong concordance and looking up a word that if I saw it anywhere else, I'd have no idea what it is because I don't read Greek. I don't understand Greek. I don't know Greek, but I got a dictionary. It's a foolish idea and it needs to stop. But is it going to? I, I doubt that it will. And it, it grieves me. When I, when I see it, it drives me up the wall that men would do that. And then men come here and do it. Imagine, imagine teaching the Bible to Ugandans who in the Buganda region speak English and Luganda. And you turn to a Luganda translator. A man who speaks English turns to a Luganda translator and says, well, this word in the Greek is, uh, you know what the translator does every time? They just look at him like, I don't know what you're saying. He doesn't know what he's saying. <laughs> It's an idiotic idea. It's foolish. It's ungodly, especially when we're here trying to teach men to trust this book. And then someone comes along and says, well, this word in the Greek, what Greek manuscript did you get that from? Well, I didn't get it from a Greek manuscript. Of course you didn't get it from a Greek manuscript. You couldn't read Greek if I gave you 10 years to try and do it. You looked it up in a Strong's Concordance, and it sounded so intellectual for you to correct God and you thought it was okay to do that and all you did was discourage people from believing God's word and that needs to stop but nobody listens to me so it's not probably not going to go far this passage is surrounded with controversy uh, the trouble for Erasmus he didn't have a manuscript he could see that grammatically the verse must be there and the passage makes no sense without the verse but he was willing to be true to the manuscripts and refused to add something he could not verify. Erasmus began work on his third edition, in which he focused on finding support for 1 John 5.7. He knew it belonged there, but he said if he cannot find at least one Greek text that contains the verse, he will not add it. If he can find it, he will add it immediately. If he can't find it, he will not add it. Now, eventually... He was presented with two Greek texts that did have 1 John 5, 7. So the verse was added in his third edition, which was produced in 1522. Now, that's integrity. That's honesty. That's someone doing his best to verify that what he's producing is what God gave. That's not someone saying, well, according to my opinion, it belongs there, so I'm going to put it there. Well, what if it didn't belong there? He'd have made a big mistake. So, praise the Lord, he didn't do that. He, he, was, he was honest. Now, he produced a fourth edition in 1527, and we're going to say something about all these editions in a moment. Um, and then his fifth and final edition was produced just before his death in 1535. Now, this is something something else that's silly that our, our brethren do, and I don't know why they do it. But they say the Word of God is true in the originals. And what they're referring to is the Textus Receptus. Well, which one? Which one is the true Word of God that you're going to cling to? Okay, but it doesn't stop there. We don't have time to go into it. The the class is over, but let me uh, just mention this quickly, and we'll pick back up here. We'll pick back up there when we start. But two men came after him. 
And, and we'll, uh, we'll go over this in the next class, so don't worry about writing this down. I just want to introduce you to the idea. Robert Stephanus and Theodore Beza, produ- Robert Stephanus produced four editions of the Textus Receptus after Erasmus, and Theodore Beza produced ten editions after Erasmus. Theodore Beza's final edition is the Textus Receptus that was used for the King James Bible. So if we're going to talk about double inspiration, <laughs> they'll say that the Textus Receptus is the Word of God. In the originals, the Textus, well, the Textus Receptus is not the originals. And if you're going to refer to the Textus Receptus, which Textus Receptus is the original? Because the original goes all the way back to 1516, and Erasmus said, yeah, i got to work on this. <laughs> So you're just going to have to trust God. It didn't happen in a way that that we can sit down and we can say, see, it happened exactly like I thought it happened, and and God preserved his word the way I thought he would, and so today we have the perfect Bible. (laughs) Well, we do have a perfect Bible today, but it probably wasn't preserved the way that you thought it was going to be preserved. Things happened in in a very different way and you're going to have to just trust God and trust that he knows what he's doing and let him lay out to you where the word of God is. Today, in the English language, it's the King James Bible. That's it. There is no other edition or version that is acceptable in English. In Luganda, you don't have a perfect copy of the word of God. Not yet. But Lord willing, we will. Lord, helping me, you will have a copy, an accurate copy of God's Word in your language. All right. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast.